Good morning, everyone. This is All People's Church coming to you from Flagstaff, Arizona. A very cold and windy morning here on February 2nd, 2022. We are about to begin verse-by-verse study of the book of 2 Corinthians. Today we are in the very first chapter, and we are going to begin by reading all 24 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comfort us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in all trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or if we are comforted, it is for the consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so will you partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brother, <clears throat> brethren, or our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sense of death, sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead, who believed us for from such great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshy wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to, to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I must mislead to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit, and to pass by you unto Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be ye and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not ye and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preaching among you by us, by me, Savannah and Timothy was not yes and no, but in him was yes. 
For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, for the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth, nor that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, I ask you today, Lord, I know that what you've given me is, I believe, breathed and given by the Holy Spirit. But Lord, I pray for myself that I would bring forth your word in a way that is pleasing to you first, but also able to be heard by the hearer. Lord, I pray that every heart that hears this message would be open to hear your voice, to hear what you have to say about the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that I will speak the truth as you've given it to me today. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing, guys, is does anybody know where Achaia is? <laughs> or what what or what it is? Because he's he he talks to the church at Corinth and he says, you know, I'm writing to you guys and also to all the Christians that live in Achaia. Well, Achaia is an island off of Greece. It's about the size of Sicily. It's a big, it's a big place. And on one side of it is Corinth, and Corinth is just across the water from Athens. It's not, not very distant to, to Athens. So Corinth is a happening place, just like Athens was. And then on the other side of the island, on the southwest side, is the city of Sparta, just to sort of give you an idea of where all of this is happening. So this is, this is really happening when Paul is preaching to these guys. He's really talking to a city that's right in the middle of the Greek culture. The other thing that you're going to notice is that if you did some research on this book of 2 Corinthians, there's a couple things that have happened. The first thing is Paul has written to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and one of the things he's done is he's really gotten on them pretty hard because they were living a, a lot of the church was living a very carnal lifestyle. They were, they were unruly and undisciplined and and they were not dealing with sin that was in the church and then the second thing that was happening was that his very ministry was being called into question in Corinth there was it was a minority of people but nonetheless they were very vocal and they were saying they didn't like Paul's message for starters <laughs> Paul's message as indeed I want my message to be 
is one that calls the church to holiness. And you can imagine in, in Corinth, there was a lot of things going on, but one of the things was a lot of idol worship. A lot of the members of the church had come out of that culture, but they still went to, the, to these temples to eat, for example. And Paul is really calling them and saying, look, you know, you, you've got to separate yourselves from your past life. And there's a lot of pushback, I'll put it like that, in the church. And they are questioning Paul's authority. They're questioning whether or not he's really an apostle, for starters, and, and questioning some other things about him and his motives and all that kind of stuff. So you're going to notice that one of the first things that happens here in the, sec in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians is he begins to deal with that right away. Let's start with the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. Paul proclaims his position as an apostle right here from the beginning in verse 1. Apostle, we know, those of you that have been sitting under my teaching for a while, you know already that apostle means witness. And in this case, it has a greater meaning than just, than just witness because Paul is really making the point, he's saying, I'm an eyewitness. When he says, I'm an apostle, he's saying, I was an eyewitness to the risen Lord. That was the thing that delineated the other 11 apostles was that they were all present at one time or another when Jesus appeared to them. So when they said they, not only were they witnesses, but they were eyewitnesses. And Paul, it's sort of inferred here, but he's saying, look, I am too. I'm an eyewitness. And his point is, I was on the road of, to Damascus when I saw the risen Lord. Paul will, will assert his authority over the Corinthian church several times in 2 Corinthians, and he begins immediately in verse 1 to let it be known that he is indeed as much of an apostle as the original, correction, original 11 disciples, and it is by the will of God. He says that in the first verse. I'm an apostle, and it's by the will of God. So he's exerting his authority to talk to the Corinthians. Now, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take a few minutes and talk about that verse. It's, it's a small verse, but he says something that's really important there. He says, grace to you. If you'll take a moment and think about that, what does that mean to you when he says that? Grace to you. Secondly, in that same verse, he pronounces peace to them. We're going to talk about that second part also today. I think that we're not going to get any further than these first two verses. It's sort of like what we did in Romans, Clinton Twyla back so long ago. There were a couple times when I talked for like an hour <laughs> on two verses. And today it's going to be similar, I think. To be a disciple of Christ 
I think there are several central teachings that must be completely understood. And, you, and I chose those words carefully, guys. I consider you all disciples, every one of you. Our church is small, but we're fervent. And you guys are not baby Christians. I consider you disciples. And because of that, that's the reason that I get deep into some of these ideas like we're going to do today. So the first thing that must be completely understood is salvation. We're not going to talk about that today, but that's the first thing you have to understand. And we've talked about that in detail in the past, and we'll talk about it again in the future. But that is the foundation. You've got to understand it completely. Second in importance to salvation, I believe, is grace. First, I will define grace and then enter into a discussion of it. In the theological sense, it has four meanings, just as many words have more than one meaning, and we will consider and rank the first two meanings in order of importance as it would be done in a dictionary. Let's define grace. This is really important. Grace means to receive as a gift something you could not do for yourself. That's the way I define it. It's a very simple definition. That's what grace is. This type of grace encompasses salvation. It was God's grace that he devised and purchased the plan of salvation. It was God's grace. It was his plan of redemption for mankind. It requires no works on our part. See, that's, that's key. That's part of understanding salvation. That's not the focus of what we're talking about today, but when we talk about grace, it's important to know that God's plan required nothing on our part. I tried to think of an example of grace, and if you will follow me on this, this is not a perfect example, but I think it, it gives the idea. He is like a teacher who gave a test and none of the students, no matter how much they studied, none of them could pass the test. But he, out of his love for the students, was lenient to them and curved the grades. Everybody understands the term curve? That's when you, when you add enough points to each student's grade so that even the weakest student gets a C or something similar. You can, it depends on how the teacher does it. But in this case, God said, look, I'm curving the test. I'm curving the score. And everyone that wants to pass this test who will accept my gift, my gift, he says, if you will accept my gift, I'm going to curve your grade, and I'm going to give you at least a C. <laughs> Is that, how about that? That's pretty simple, right? But doesn't that get the idea? It's like a C is passing, and that's all you got to have, right? We just got to pass. And God is saying, look, it's by grace. You couldn't do this on your own. You could not be good enough. No matter how you tried, no matter what you did, you could not satisfy my requirements. 
but out of my own goodness, out of my own love for you, I'm going to be lenient and I'm going to curve the grade. And to get this grade, all you've got to do is accept my gift. That's it. This is the grace that God gives to anyone who accepts the atoning death of his son. Salvation is a one-time act. It's important. Salvation is a one-time act. God did it, and then the job was done, right? Christ on the cross said, it is finished. It's complete. It was done one time. It is a gift of unmerited love and favor by God for the benefit of all mankind. It's unmerited. We don't earn it. When this gracious gift is understood and accepted, a person's past sins, current sins, and future sins are forgiven. That's true. They are erased from God's ledger, and here's the kicker. He promises he will never remember them against us again. This is the classic theological meaning of grace, the unmerited love and favor of God toward man. That's what grace is. And it's been recognized as that for generations, maybe for hundreds of years. That's been the definition of grace. It is the unmerited, and I'm quoting now from Webster's New World Dictionary, Second College Edition, copyright 1972, page 605. And this is definition 10A. It says, the unmerited love and favor of God toward man. That's grace. It's also the basis for, does everyone know what an acrostic is? It's really, a lot of times it's a memory device where you make a word out of the first letter of, of other words or the last letter. In this case, we're going to use the first letter. This acrostic many young people learned in Sunday school, and you may have learned this yourself. But grace is spelled G-R-A-C-E. And G stands for God's, R, riches, A, at, C, Christ, with apostrophe S, expense. So it spells grace, and it's easy to remember, God's riches at Christ's expense. So that's the first theological definition of grace. And as a disciple, you need to know that. You need to know what grace is. That was not the thing that Paul was wishing to the Corinthians, though. But we have to get that first one out of the way. The second one, in, the second definition is what we're going to talk about when it comes to what Paul was wishing to the Corinthians. A secondary but closely related meaning of grace is enablement or influence. Again, from the theological definition of grace, and this comes from 10b of that same dictionary that I was talking to you about, it is divine influence acting in man. It is divine influence acting in man to make him pure and morally strong. And again, this is from the dictionary, okay? 
I mean, it sort of sounds wild because our society has so distorted what grace is. The giving of power or ability to withstand pressure or duress or temptation encompasses this idea. And that's what Paul was wishing to the Corinthians. I want to read that part of the second verse again. He says, grace to you and peace from God. He says, grace to you. See, he's not talking about salvation grace. They've already experienced salvation grace, right? He's talking about something else. What he's talking to them about is the second definition of grace. And I'm going to read it again. He's wishing them divine influence acting in man to make him pure and morally strong. That's what he's wishing to them. It is this meaning of grace that Paul is using when he addresses the Corinthians. Grace in this context always means the second definition of grace. It is the power given to us to not sin. So many times in our current society, when people talk about grace, they're thinking it's okay to sin. They're saying grace covers your sin. And it does in the original sense. When you were saved, grace performed that function. But the grace that Paul is wishing the Corinthians is the grace that says, I'm, I'm wishing that God enables you to live a moral and holy life. Grace to you from God always means may God give you the ability, the strength, the spiritual balance, the spiritual composure so that you will not sin or in a positive sense, grace, strength, that is strength, ability and power to succeed. Why is this important? Let's talk about what grace is not. Okay, we're going to compare and contrast. As a disciple, when someone talks about grace or you, or you see or hear the word grace, how many times is grace used in the Bible, right? I mean, over and over and over again. But unless we define it, we don't really know what's being talked about. This is important. What grace is not. Grace never means the giving of permission to sin. Ever. It never means that. God does not give it. And we cannot give it to someone else or ourselves. That is diametrically opposed to the meaning of grace. <laughs> All, those of you that sat under my teaching when we went through Corinthians, I mean uh, Romans, that was the thing Paul was accused of, right? He was accused of saying, by the Jewish Christians in particular, the Jewish people, that what Paul was saying was that once you accepted Christ as Savior, you could live any way you want. What does he say in Romans? He says, God forbid. He says, that is not what I'm teaching. But today, the teaching of, of grace has been distorted. So let me read this again to you because I think it's really good. And I think it's breathed of the Holy Ghost. And I think if you can comprehend it, and when I say comprehend it, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. 
I know you can comprehend it, but what I mean is if it gets into your spirit, it will make a big difference for you. There's two things I think about when I think about the scriptures. Number one is they're the only thing that's not distorted in, in our lives. Would you agree with that? Everything else is tainted by mankind. The news is tainted, right? People choose what news they're going to report and what slant they're going to give it. Is that not true? And then the books we read, the courses we attend at college, the opinions of others, everything is distorted, not because we're bad people necessarily, it's just because we're human. Denise can tell a story pretty good. She, she can remember, she and my son have the best ability to remember exactly what people say. They would make great witnesses in a court of law. I wouldn't. You know, have you ever heard the term where the person says, or words to that effect? That was written for people like me. I can't remember what people say exactly, but generally I have a notion of what they said. But it's not because I'm a bad person that I sometimes distort in the retelling of what they said. I distort what they say a little bit because I don't rem remember it exactly. The Word of God is written. It's written for a reason. Number one, it's written because God said, I hold myself to my word. He says, I put my word above my name. He's saying, when I tell you something and it's written down, I live by it, you can plan your life on it, you can bank on it. That's important. And because of that, it's unchangeable. And that's the reason Denise and I are very concerned about translations of the Bible. And the reason that I'm wanting to go back to the New King James is because we have found some skoshy stuff in the NIV and we are just we're we're in turmoil over it I guess it's the only way to say it so we're trying to get back to something that's a little more faithful to the original Greek is uh, the best way I can put it God's Word is written it's written for a reason it is the only thing that's not distorted in our lives so the second thing is we have to study the Word of God. When we get the understanding of the Word of God right, it's a lens that we look through. Clint and I have recently tried different pairs of glasses, and Clint went back to bifocals, and I'm still, I'm with the, whatever you call that, the progressive. But when it's right for you, it's in focus. And the thing that the Word of God will do is if we can understand it, it brings things into focus. If you misinterpret the Bible, things begin to get blurry. <laughs> That's the, the kindest thing I can say. And so it's very important that when we begin to talk about grace, that we get it right. Because if we don't, it's going to distort the Bible. What grace is not? Let's talk about what grace is not. God never means the giving of permission to sin. I'm repeating. I'm, re I'm starting again. I'm repeating a few things, but we'll get moving here. God does not give it, and we cannot give it to someone else or, or ourselves. Let me repeat you do not have the authority to give someone else or yourself permission to sin, period. 
It is a completely unbiblical idea. That's the reason Paul said, God forbid that I would say such a thing. Nowhere to be found anywhere in God's word. Prove me wrong. If in your mind what I'm saying sounds radical today, and I'm talking to anyone that might be listening to me now or in the future, in person or on the internet in some fashion, prove me wrong. Go through the Bible and find examples of where God said it's okay to sin or where God's holy men told others it's okay to sin. You're not going to find it. Let's turn to John, the eighth chapter. Denise, would you read today? Mm -hmm. You'll turn to John, the eighth chapter, and Denise will know this story. She probably remembers it already. She talked about the woman that was caught in adultery in one of her teachings just a, a week or two ago. And would you read verses 1 through 11? <coughs> but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Okay, isn't that a neat story? There's a world of things to talk about in that story, but we're only going to talk about that last sentence. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. What is he showing toward her? Grace, right? He's grace. He's, he's saying, look, I don't condemn you either. Another way he could have said it was, I forgive you of your sins. There were times when Jesus' ministry, when he would heal someone, and then he would also say, and your sins are forgiven. He could have said that to her, but basically he, he did in the sense that he says, I don't condemn you. As far as I'm concerned, you're not condemned. He showed her grace. But then what is the next thing he said after he showed her grace? Go and sin no more. So there's two things that we can think about in that sentence. Number one, we are just like that woman, right? We, we were all caught in sin. When we were drugged before Jesus, figuratively speaking now, when we were confronted by the crowd that surrounded us, any of us could have been in the center of that spectacle, just like the woman was, and they could have said of Jerry, they could have said, 
He's a sinner. He was caught in the act of sinning. And that would have been true of me. And the thing was, though, when the Lord said to me, he said, would you accept my gift of salvation? I said, yes. He says, fine. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. You're free to go. But what's the second thing he said to me and says to all of us? Go and sin no more. Right? Here's the deal. By definition, and I'm going to, this will bring us mostly to a conclusion I'm going to talk about. I may talk a little bit about the second part of this verse, which was peace to you. When he said, go and sin no more, he would not have said that to her or to us if we couldn't do it. We're not perfect. That's not what I mean. We're not perfect. But when we're saved, the power of sin is broken. That is taught clearly in Romans. After we're saved, if we sin, it's because we choose to. Before we're saved, honestly, there's times when I did not want to sin, but I did. There were times when I hated myself because of my sin. I hated what it was doing to those around me. But I, I really wasn't capable of controlling my behavior. Some people, they may be a lot closer to living a moral life than I was. But none of us, none of us before we're saved are without sin, period. We all fall short. That's the reason God, of course, allowed Christ to die for us. But the thing that happened when I was saved, and some of you are going to have questions about this, and I hope we can talk about this uh, after church service today if you want to. Some of you are going to have questions about the fact that some people who are saved continue to sin. And so the question is, are they really saved? And I think that's a, a good question to ask. But if you really make that connection with God, what is that connection? It's when you really, in your heart of heart, say, I'm sorry for my sins, and I accept your gift, your way of salvation, then something happens. It's profoundly a spiritual thing. But when you are truly saved, when you understand that you can't save yourself, you accept God's gift, and when you know that you are bought with a price, I think if I can just talk for just a minute about salvation, there are a lot of people, and you may be one of them, uh, listener today from wherever you're listening, you may say, I accepted Jesus at the altar, but nothing seemed to change in my life. Then I would suggest to you go back to the altar. Go back to the altar and you stay there until you, until you, the old time religion expression is, until you pray through. You need to get serious with God and you need to make sure that you are giving yourself completely and totally to him. What happens a lot in our society is that invitation to 
salvation will be a rather weak invitation because one of the things it will say, it will say, if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior and have eternal life, then come down and repeat these words after me. The thing that's seldom said in those kinds of situations is that Jesus said, count the cost. Because he says, when you accept me, I'm first place. I am first place, he says. I am more important than your mom and dad, or your brothers and sisters, or your wife, or your job, or anything else. He says, I am, you, in relation to me, you have to hate those things. You have, that's, how, that's how far in, in the distance you must place me ahead of them. It's as if you love me and hate them. They are so far down the road, so far down the, the list of importance behind me. He says, you've got to accept me first. Once you do, you have eternal life, but you also are bought with a price. And so a lot of times when people have an experience but it doesn't match up with the biblical experience, then my question is go back. Go back, understand the Bible, and go back to prayer. It's not, it's not that it can happen. It's just that it hasn't happened yet. You need to go back to that altar and get things right with God. Because here's the key. Here's the key. And this is the point of this whole conversation. Jesus would have never said to that woman, go and sin no more, if it would not have been possible. He didn't say, your salvation is going to be dependent upon your good works. But he's saying, I am giving you the power. The power is going to be resident within you. I have not condemned you. You are forgiven of your sins. But now the, the, the power of sin is broken. From now on, if you sin... It will be your choice. And that's the beauty of understanding grace. Because once you understand that, it's going to bring your picture, your view of the Gospels into focus. Then everything that Paul says and everything that Jesus says is going to make sense. And that's in conclusion. I'm going to stop there today and we'll talk about peace next week. But in conclusion, it's important. You are disciples. It's important that you understand grace. You need to know that there's four theological definitions of grace. The first two are the most important. The first one is the grace of salvation. The grace that is out of the love of God. It was His grace that devised the plan of salvation. That's the first grace. And then the second grace is the one that we we're just talking about. He gives us, here. And, and if I might go back, I'll read the definition again because it's going to really make sense to you now. The second definition of grace is divine, divine influence acting in man to make him pure and morally strong. That kind of grace is that empowerment from God. It's a grace. And we should pray for it. <laughs> I said I was, I was concluding, and I am. But pray for it. 
You know, I talk a lot about prayer because it's misunderstood, honestly, in the Christian church. Number one, a lot of Christians thinks, think it is optional. It is not optional. You must pray. You absolutely must pray. And secondly, you should pray for yourself. And don't, don't go skimpy on it. Pray for yourself. One of the things that you can pray for is grace. Lord, give me your grace to live the way you want me to live. Mm -hmm. You can ask for it. He wants to give you good gifts. Mm -hmm. And he wants to give you grace. Ask for it. Make, make yourself available to it. You can have that, that empowering of God, the second definition of grace in your own life and pray for it. And with that, I'll conclude. And I hope you enjoyed the message today. And I hope it'll make a big difference in your life. The two definitions of grace. Amen.